Good to see you all. Thank you for so much for joining us on this beautiful Sunday afternoon and coming together to worship and to be in fellowship with one another and to study God's word. We're continuing in our series that we kind of launched last week with our beautiful Shavuot Pentecost service under Nidhi's direction and so much of your contribution to hear those beautiful languages spoken in our midst. But we'll kind of more officially now launch on into this little series on Peter. When we started working on thinking through Peter, the first jump was, well, let's just do the epistles, because we haven't, epistles is a fancy Christian word for letter, okay? So, um, let's just do these two letters that are attributed to the person of Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. They're not talked about much, they're not discussed much, so we'll do those. But then as soon as you start to think, well, let's just open up the letters and talk about them, if you're a good sparker, a good Bible student, you say to yourself, well, who is Peter and how do we know he wrote those letters and why would we care that he wrote them and what's the context for writing them and what is happening and, you know, who is this dude? So let's start there. Once we started sort of uncovering all of the who is Peter questions, it just sort of unearthed a lot more questions, many more, and it might be that we don't get to the epistles, those fancy, that fancy word for letter, for a few weeks. Because there's so much to talk about in order to understand Peter before we get to later in life when he wrote letters to some churches. So are you excited? Because I'm excited and I've already learned more about Peter than I ever knew. So let's start with who is Peter? Well, for one, he is one of the 12 disciples. And for the sake of this study, or at least for today, I'm pulling from the translation called the Complete Jewish Bible. It is a translation written by a Messianic Jew who has just recently passed away a few, at this last year or so. Of David, his name is David Stern, lives in Jerusalem, uh, was also Fuller Professor, and he wrote a translation of the whole Bible, for the Hebrew Bible as well as the Christian scriptures, um, by keeping it Hebraic. So I wanted to read it to you in this way because I think the first thing I'd like to let you know about Peter is that he was a really good Torah-keeping, kosher-keeping, first-century Jew. And we might read him as like our BFF because we relate to him really well in whatever way, and that's great, but we should at least first know that um, nobody actually called him Peter. Um, Maybe they called him something else. Let's talk about it. Okay, so... It was around that time that Yeshua, that's the Hebrew word for Jesus, and also Jesus didn't go by Jesus, he would have gone by Yeshua, which is a derivative of Joshua, Yahushua. It was around that time that Yeshua went out to the hill country to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when he came, he called his disciples, the word in Hebrew is Talmudim, for plural, he called his Talmudim and chose from them, chose from among them 12 to be known as emissaries. Shimon, whom he named Kepha, Andrew, his brother, Yaakov, Yohanan, Philip, Bar, Talmai, Matiyahu, Toma, Yaakov, Ben Halfai, Shimon, the one called the Zealot, Yehuda Ben Yaakov, and Yehuda from Kiriot, who turned traitor. Um, and this is from Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. Did that already sound kind of weird to you? Like, we're like, wait, I know, I know this passage. I've been around church a long time. This was definitely taught to me in a flannel gram, um, but, or a YouTube video, depending upon how old you are, or young, depending upon the case maybe. But these would be closer to the way that those names would have been spoken then. So let's just start with a basic question. What's Peter's name? Well, according to the Gospels, uh, Mark chapter 316 says that Jesus 
Peter's name was Shimon, which is named after who? Does anybody know? It's a good biblical name from the book of Genesis. It's one of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 sons of Yaakov, of Jacob. Simeon, yeah, and Shimon means like to hear, okay? Because God has heard Leah's prayers and gives her a son. And so his name is Shimon, good Jewish name, very good. We're very happy with this. And Jesus gives him another name, Kepha. According to John chapter 1, verse 44, it says that the first thing Andrew did, so this is what's happened is John the Baptist, or Yohanan the Immerser, as is translated in this translation, um, has just seen Jesus and said, hey, there's the Lamb of God. And John's disciples go, got it, and turn and start following Jesus. And so after that, then, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Shimon, and tell him, we have found the Mashiach. Does anyone know what Mashiach means? We say Messiah in English, and it means what? It's actually a word that means something. What's that? Anointed, yes, Mashiach. Um, In Greek, it's Christos, which is how we get Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. It's not his last name, in case you were wondering. Um, You wouldn't have to address Jesus Christ Nazareth, right? Um, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. He took him to Jesus, Yeshua, and looking at him, Yeshua said, you are Shimon bar Yochanan, and you will be known as Kepha. So we have another part of the story of Jesus changing Peter's name, or Shimon's name, to Kepha. So Kepha is the name Yeshua gave Shimon bar Yochanan, which is kind of interesting because I did not really ever pay attention that according to the Gospel of John, Simon's name in English, we would say Simon, son of John. But I always thought it was Simon, son of Jonah, because in Matthew, and we'll talk about this in a week or two, Jesus refers to him as Simon, son of a dove, um, and son of a dove would be Bar Yonah. But early manuscripts don't actually uphold Yonah, Jonah as the name, but instead Yochanan. So learn something new. Okay, so Yochanan is son of John. So Kepha is the name Yeshua gave Shimon bar Yochanan bar Yonah. And Kepha means rock in Aramaic. And the Greek word for rock is Petros. Thus, that's why we call him Peter in English. Isn't that a lot of work to figure out just what's his name? I felt exhausted doing this for you all. And I even thought, maybe I shouldn't tell you. But I was like, no, no, you should know. It's, it's not easy. If somebody just said, what's that guy's name? You'd be like, well, let me tell you a story. Um, so occasionally, instead of translating Kepha as Petros, the Greek text transliterates Kepha as Kephas. So sometimes in English versions, we also refer to him as Cephas. Anybody ever seen that part? So here's his name. Simon, Peter, Kepha, Cephas, Petros, son of John, or son of Jonah. That's the name. It's very long. And that's what he would maybe have gone by. Now, interestingly, in the Gospels, even though his first name that we show up with is Shimon, which is like God you know, has heard or to hear, and that, by the way, when we say the hero Israel, the word Shema, Shimon, it's connected right there. Um, that word Shimon is hardly ever used for Peter again. Almost always from that point forward, he is referred either in the, in the Aramaic it would be Kepha, but in the Hebrew, in the Greek, it would be Petros, Petra, Peter, which is where we get to this. All right, so let's talk about where he's from. This one's easier, all right? His name is complicated. He's got many names. By the way, why so many languages? Why do we have Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic? 
because those were all the languages talk, spoken in his day, particularly in the region where he's at. So let's find out where he's from. John chapter one, verse 44 says, the next day having decided to leave for the Galil, which is kind of interesting because they're in the Galil, um, Yeshua found Philip and said, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the town where Andrew and Kepha lived. So Andrew and his brother, Peter, Kepha, lived in Bethsaida. Where is Bethsaida? Bethsaida is in the north portion of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually... Um, disputed as to its exact location. So the Sea of Galilee is located in the northern part of what we call Israel, and it's in the Rift Valley. And this is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. So if you ever need that bumper sticker, go there and say, I've been to the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It's about between 600 to 700 feet below sea level. It is in the Rift Valley, which goes all the way down to the continent of Africa and through. And here in the Rift Valley, we have this beautiful little freshwater lake. It's about 13 miles wide from north to south and about seven to eight miles wide east to west, depending upon how much rain there's been that year. And when Mark Twain visited it, when he went, beautiful, you can read it, Innocence Abroad, nice, big, thick book. When he went, he was like, eh, Lake Tahoe is better. So <laughs> not impressed at all. And he was with a whole bunch of Puritan pilgrims who were like, isn't it beautiful? And I love it so much. And I feel like I can see Mary in the eyes of all of these young women around. He was like, Lake Tahoe is better. So not to be fooled up. Bethsaida, though, is right in the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee. This portion would be the portion where religious Jews lived, and this is a Jewish village, a small village, a kind of tiny little fishing village, and it has been argued as to its exact location. For a long time, and if you've ever been with us to Israel, we've taken you to a site that we've said, maybe, maybe this is the Bethsaida, and those of you who have gone and said, this cannot be the Bethsaida because we've taken you to a tell and it's way 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 up away from the lake and you've said how is this the house of fishing if it's so far away from the sea of galilee but they found fishing implements there and fish hooks and they have a little archaeological dig it's pretty cool it is most likely the um, old testament town of geshur which comes into your david story but um and there's some fascinating finds there but it's debated so some scholars say it's absolutely Bethsaida because we want the tourists to come here and pay money to enter the park so we have put lovely things it's like you are now walking on the street of the disciples and we and it's beautiful and old and wonderful and they've said that the reason why it's so far away from the lake is because there had been an earthquake at some point and the sea of galilee silted in you know uh, some significant amount maybe but now there are scholars who are arguing and digging and these are friends of ours actually who are in this clump of trees right over here do you see that nice little clump they're saying that that is the site of Bethsaida. And it's been, it's marshy and it's underwater and it's kind of hard to excavate. And you can see the Jordan River, can you not? Snaking down into the north portion of the Sea of Galilee where it's going to empty on in. And so that Jordan River would have had fish in it too. And so they're gonna argue that that's the site of Bethsaida. And somewhere in between all of this, they're gonna say, this is where Jesus fed the 5,000. And they had the miracle of the multiplication of the Lord's, of the Lord's, no, loaves and fishes. And in that, then, there is a church there that remembers this near Tabcha called the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And they have a nice mosaic to remember that too. By the way, this was not there in Jesus' day. He did not go to church, in case you're wondering. Okay, so it's a little bit later. Does that kind of help us a little bit frame where Peter is? He's living on a border town between 
Bethsaida and Capernaum where he would have to go across. Every time he'd go back and forth to Bethsaida to Capernaum, he would have to pay a tax. And this is a border town that would be in the time of Herod in Galilee where Herod's in charge, Antipas is up there, and the Romans are there too. And up in Galilee in the north, there are long horizon lines, and it is the way that you would get to Damascus, and it is way over that you would go over to the way of the sea, and then also cross down onto the international coastal highway. So it's highly traveled and hung out a lot. And even though it's this kind of, you're like, is it backwater? Is it just real rural? Are they just, you know, kind of kind of country folk, they were right next to this really crazy, and then this is what we find out about Peter, is we know he's married because it says that Yeshua went to Kepha's home, which was in Capernaum, or Kafar, should say, not, should not say Kefir, it autocorrected me, Kafar, my, my computer needs to learn the Hebrew, means village, and Nahum, like same name as the prophet Nahum. And there they saw Kepha's mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began helping him. Well, every time Peter and the other disciples would go back and forth between Bethsaida and Capernaum, they would be having to pay a tax. But Peter's mother-in-law is there, and that's where Peter's home is. And there's a place you can go there still today, and you can see maybe what Peter's household looked like. Um, Archaeologists have looked at this and said, here's what we would illustrate that those beautiful anchors or little ports and and docks around the entire area. So they would say this was maybe like Capernaum of Jesus's day, of Peter's day, a simple village looking out onto the sea. And when they started excavating this in the early 1900s, they took a photo and this is what it looked like then. They came upon these ruins in Capernaum and you see that staircase right there. Today you can walk up that staircase. This photo is being taken from the position of the staircase. It's been rebuilt, uh, re-pulled, sort of reconstructed, but the white stones that you see are not from the time of Jesus. Those are from about 400 years later. The stones at the bottom, though, those are from the time of Jesus. And so we can get a very good sort of frame as to how large the synagogue was and how large the community was that met here. Capernaum ended up being one of the largest synagogues that has ever been excavated, and it holds the same foundation footprint that had in the time of Jesus. So even though it doesn't look exactly like this, we know it was large, and it drew a lot of people, that there was significant industry in Capernaum, there was the fishing harbor and the docks, but there was also a place where they milled stones in order to have beautiful basalt. You come with us, it's really cool, and I'll show you all the things. And there was a very large place of study. And Capernaum seems to be a little bit like the Stanford of Jesus' day. I was going to say Harvard and Yale, but then I remembered I'm on this coast. So the Stanford or the Santa Clara or the Berkeley or whatever, a very high level of study. So this is where Peter's living. So all of our ideas of Peter maybe being um, uneducated, just a common fisherman, um, not really understanding the ways of the world, these should kind of probably go to the wayside and at least be held in question. Because he's on a border town where the Roman Empire is, his name is being given to him in Hebrew and in Greek and in Aramaic. And he would be going back and forth, and the town he's adjacent to, Bethsaida is his hometown, but he ends up living with his wife's family in Capernaum, which is where Jesus puts his ministry, and that is a huge seat of scholarship in Jesus' day. Okay.
So we know his name, we know where he's from, we know where he, that he's married. He's the only disciple that we know of that's married. None of the others are mentioned as being married. And we know his profession. He's a fisherman. Phew, that one, it's uncomplicated. But let's talk about it. Matthew chapter 18 verses, chapter four, excuse me, verses 18 through 20. As Yeshua walked by Lake Kinneret, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers who were fishermen, Shimon, known as Kepha, and his brother Andrew, throwing their net into the lake. And Yeshua said to them, come after me, and I will make you fishers for men. And at once they left their nets and went with him. Now, for those of you who hung around Spark for a little while, and you can go and grab some of these messages, we've talked about what a weird scene this is, haven't we? And I've explained to you that if, in my growing up experience, if I had been doing yard work, right, out in my yard and had been working with my father and out were fishing and doing my profession, and some person had just rolled up and said, hey, come follow me, and then I went, I would think I was crazy, and I presumed my family would also think that I was crazy. But in this day, Jesus is esteemed. He is a teacher. He is a teacher of honor. He's a rabbi in the community. Maybe not like rabbi we think of today, but like honored teacher, And he has, in some accounts, already done miracles. He's raised Peter's mother-in-law from the dead. Like, he's doing some amazing things. And in this rabbinic discipleship system, typically, if you were already out fishing, and all everyone had a career, some sort of profession, some way to make ends meet, but if you were doing your predominant work out there in that profession, it might mean that you weren't the best of the best, the cream of the crop, that got to sit at the foot of a rabbi and to study all day long. But if a rabbi then came rolling up, and you didn't have to audition for the rabbi and said, please, 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 can I follow you? Instead, if the rabbi came by and said, hey, you, I think you've got what it takes. Come follow me. You'd be like, got it, and leave everything and go. Because it made sense. It made sense to do this. Like as if Steph Curry, who lives locally here, we all know, and everyone tries to get a side of him. Like, what church can I go to so I can see Steph Curry? It's not Spark. Find another one. Um, <laughs> he would be more than welcome anytime. We'd love to have him. Um, if Steph Curry came, right, amazing follower of Jesus, and he saw you playing basketball in your driveway, and he said, hey, kid, I think you've got what it takes to be like me. Your, kid, your parents would be like booting you, in, like stuffing you with all your belongings into the limo and saying, go, and have him teach you about all the things of Jesus too, right? So all of those good things. It's like a rabbi shows up and says, hey, you've got what it takes. I'll make you fisher of people instead of just fishermen out here. What were they doing though fishing? It's not rod and reel like we think. Most of us have very like pastoral calm images when we think of fishing, don't we? Some guy or gal lonely down by the lake taking quiet time, you know, and like just trying to catch some fish. Um, This was actually a hard bit of work. So we've already talked about how this is the lowest freshwater lake and that it sits inside the Rift Valley. And there are ports all along the sea, the sea of Galilee, all around. Migdal, where Miriam, Mary is from, um, which Migdal can just mean tower. Um, Genesar, Tabcha, Capernaum, and then up Beit Saida-ish, and then continues Gergesa, and on this side, Susita, Ipos, and then goes all the way down to Gadara, and then Tiberias, and on up again. And all around the lake, archaeologists have found nets that, uh, no, sorry, they've found weights for the nets. They have found anchors and they have found and excavated where these different docks are all around the lake. And we've even had, from a first century home, we have a mosaic of what a fishing boat looked like, and this home was from Migdal. And fishing was a team sport. 
not a solitary activity, and this is actually what your Gospels will tell you in Luke chapter 5, beginning in 1 through 11. One day as Yeshua was standing on the shore of Lake Kinneret with the people pressing in around him in order to hear the word of God. By the way, you stand when God speaks, so he's probably reciting text. So he's reciting text and he would be standing and everyone's trying to listen in and listen in to that word. And then they're pressing around to hear him. He notices two boats pulled up on the beach, left there by fishermen, and they're cleaning their nets. Why are they cleaning their nets? Because they're done fishing for the day, right? And you'd have to clean your nets because seaweed gets caught in them and fish that aren't clean and aren't kosher get caught in them and you have to do all the work. Jesus gets into one of the boats, the one belonging to Shimon, and asked him to put out a little way from shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Shimon, by the way, you, you sit when the person teaches, and you stand when God speaks. That's what's happening there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Shimon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Shimon answered, uh, <laughs> we've worked hard all night long, Rabbi, and haven't caught a thing. But if you say so... I'll let down the nets. They did this and took in so many fish that the nets began to tear. And so they motioned to their partners, fishing team sport, in the other boat to come and help them. This might also tell us about how successful Peter was. He wasn't just his own guy with only his own boat. He was in a partnership and he had other people. He motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats to the point of sinking. And when he saw this, Shimon Kepha fell at Yeshua's knees and said, get away from me, sir, because I'm a sinner. And for astonishment had seized him and everyone with him at the catch of fish that they had taken. And likewise, both Yaakov and Yochanan, Jacob and John, Shimon's partners, said, don't be, don't be afraid, Yeshua said to Shimon, from now on you'll be catching men alive. And as soon as they had beached their boats, they left everything behind and followed him. Now, why is it so astonishing? Because it's the wrong time of day for this catch. First of all, it's obviously quite a good catch, but also it's the wrong time of day. It's daytime right now when they're doing this, but the type of fishing that they had done was they had done it at night and not been successful. So they're catching the wrong kind of fish, at the, at the, the right kind of fish, but at the wrong time of day. What did this boat look like? Well, they've actually found a boat from the first century that was stuck in the mud for a long time, and they excavated it in the 1980s, and it's a fascinating story, and you can read all about it. And it's really amazing, and then you can go and see it at uh, a kibbutz alongside the northern northwestern shore of Galilee. And here's how they've pieced it together: it's made with sort of like joint and fastening. There's some nails also found in the boat, and a small pot. And the sides of the boat are low, so you could bring the fish in. And a first-century Galilean fishing boat could have different ways of functioning. You could cast a net, and then you could have... So here we go. Here's like another version of the fish, and we have St. Peter's fish today. You can still go and eat it. I don't think they was called that in Jesus' day, right? He didn't know he was St. Peter yet. He wasn't St. Peter. But you can go and have a whole fish with some french fries. It's quite good. So cast nets would be more of a solitary activity, but you'd be doing that with others on the boat. You'd be standing up, organizing the net, has weights on the side, and toss it out so it kind of makes a circle, splashes on in, and you hope you catch some fish fish. And then you also have the drag net where you'd have partners and you'd go on out and there'd be weights on the bottom and your partners would pull it all in and you'd see what you catch and they have to clean it back out and toss it out. And the type of fishing that is happening in this portion, and by the way, this is all great scholarship work by a wonderful man of blessed memory named Mendel Nun, and he just studied fishing in the Galilee his whole life, made a little museum about it as well, and you can go in, and he spent his entire life on the sea, and he says that the fishing stories in the Gospels are so accurate to the 
practice and type of fishing that has continued for centuries. So this is what they're doing that night. It's a trammel net fish, where they, fishing system, where at night they would drop down a big circular net, it would have weights on the bottom, floats on the top, and then they would start to collect and catch the fish. The fish would go through one portion that get caught and not be able to back back out. And this is why G Peter says, We've, why are you asking us to do this? It's the wrong time of day, why would we do this at all? In fact, at nighttime then, what they would happen is the fishermen would maybe even have a light sort of putting out over the boat in order to track the fish up to the surface, and then they would slap the top of the water so the fish would get caught in the net and be able to pull it in. They've been doing that work all night. They've brought the nets in and they're cleaning them and they're done. They want to go home and rest. And Peter's like, why don't you, Jesus is like, why don't you go and do that one more time? Kevin and I actually camped right there at that place where the hot spring water comes in and this type of fishing happens. And we were in a tent, just like on a beach. And uh, all of a sudden we started hearing, I started hearing in the middle of the night. And it scared the life out of me. I was like, okay, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, wake up. I was okay with the crickets and the frogs and whatever other animals and birds were around, but that sound scared me. And I peeked out and there were fishermen still doing it today, same technique in the boat, right there at the spring, with the light hanging over, slapping the top of the water and catching it. Really cool. So, the Sea of Galilee, gorgeous, beautiful. Fishing became such a symbol for the early church of these disciples, of Jesus, even though Jesus himself was not a fisherman, but a craftsman, a workman with stone and perhaps wood that the early Christian symbol ended up becoming that of a fish. You've probably seen it on the back of cars or on the back of cars where people are upset that Christians put that on the back of cars and they've added feet, right? And then they have the Darwin fish eating the Jesus fish. And it's all trouble when you, you know, reduce your faith to a symbol. But the reason why was because early Christians were persecuted for their faith. And so an early Christian symbol used the Greek acronym or acrostic for ichthus, fish. And they used it to mean Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so then they would take those Greek letters and they would actually make game boards with them in order to signal to one another that they were Christians in the midst. And those early Christian symbols of fish are still popping up. About 10, 15 years ago, they excavated a prayer, what they're calling a prayer hall. What the earliest Christian building we've ever found from the third century ever in the land of Israel, we found this Christian building and it's got fish right at the center of the mosaic and this in Megiddo. And in early Christian tombs in the catacombs in Rome, we have symbols of anchors and fish there to represent Christians. And Tertullian in 160 to 220 in his treaty on baptism reasons that as water sustains fish, we being little fishes, as Jesus Christ is our great fish, begin our life in the water and only while we abide in the water are, are we safe and sound. So this image of us being fish, of fishers of men, of this being a symbol of early Christians persists as a result of all these gospel stories and specifically of Peter's profession and Peter's work. All right, we did a lot of work, we got there. Now let's talk about Simon Peter. When we talk about Peter in the Gospels, many of us want to immediately say, or some of us, no one in this room, 
I can tell you the Myers-Briggs personality test of Peter because he is very bold. Or I can tell you which Enneagram he is based upon all of the interactions that we have had inside the Jesus gospel narratives. Anybody? And so we've often used Peter as a prototype in the gospels for what a disciple is or should be or shouldn't be. Why do we do that? Why do we just say, I can tell you everything about Peter because, you know, I can, I can figure out his personality type, I can do all that. It's because we have the most information about him. He's the most spoken about disciple. He's the disciple that is in all of the inner circle moments. He's the disciple that has some very dramatic things happen towards the end of his, you know, earthly ministry time with Jesus, right? All of those things are going on. We know more about Peter than we do any other disciple in the Gospels. And it might be because the Gospels are using Peter as a prototype of what a disciple or follower of Jesus looks like. And so when we talk about Peter, we're like, well, he's loud. He's Peter the loud. He's Peter the brash. He's Peter the braggart. He's like so arrogant. He's like, I can do all these things, right? He's Peter the fisherman, but he's also Peter the doubter. And he's Peter the proclaimer, but he's also Peter the denier. And he's Peter the sword wielder, loves to cut off people's ears, can't explain that. Like, so all of the things we can talk about with Peter, right? But then we would also say things like Peter the shepherd and Peter the witness and Peter the teacher and Peter the preacher, as we talked about last week for Shavuot in Acts 2, or Peter the baptizer and the reformer and the wrestler and the believer. And I think we do that because so many of the Peter stories do give us a little bit of a human experience with Jesus much more than they were just standing next to him. And the most famous one is Peter walking on water, right? And then everybody has a good idea as to why he sunk. Let me just explain. I know exactly why Peter sunk. He took his eyes off Jesus. And if you'll just not take your eyes off Jesus, you too won't sink. It'll be great. You're going to be fine. No problem, right? Peter didn't sink because of laws of physics, but he didn't sink because of gravity. He didn't sink for any of those things. He just, he sunk because he had terrible theology, or he sunk because he had his fear grip hold of him. Oh, okay, maybe. But maybe there's things about Peter that we just don't know and we're just trying to sort of taste a little bit of what it would have been like to be with Jesus, which I think would have been amazing and incredible and confusing and concerning and difficult and requiring significant sacrifice and exciting. And like the, the best thing ever and the most life-changing thing ever and very disruptive in all the things. Now, when Peter is out there on that beautiful Sea of Galilee, and it's so calm and lovely, and it's tiny, it's much smaller than Lake Tahoe, um, and you can see on clear days, because it is in the Rift Valley, if it's quite hot, like the humidity can obscure the other side, but on clear days, you can easily see the other side, and you're like, you can almost be like, I can swim there. In fact, if you like to run marathons and you're one of those kinds of people, you can actually do that around the whole lake in a day, right? Like, it's not a problem at all. Let's read Matthew 14, 22 through 33. This is the only gospel that tells us the story of Peter trying to walk on water. Immediately, Yeshua had the Talmudim and disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he'd sent the crowds away, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. And night came on, and he was there alone, very peaceful and lovely and all the good things, right? You can preach like 15 sermons, right? After you do miracles, get away and spend time with God. But by this time, the boat was several miles from shore, battling a rough sea and a headwind. And around four o'clock in the morning, 
he, Jesus, Yeshua, came toward them walking on the lake. This is surprising, isn't it? It's weird, right? You've never seen anybody do that before. People have tried and failed ever since. When the Talmudim saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and screamed with fear. But at once Yeshua spoke to them, courage, he said, his eyes, stop being afraid. And then Kepha called to him, Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. So Kepha got out of the boat and walked on the water toward Yeshua. But when he saw the wind, he became afraid. And as he began to sink, he yelled, Lord, save me. And Yeshua immediately stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, such little trust, why did you doubt? And as they went up into the boat, the wind ceased and the men in the boat fell down before him and exclaimed, you really are God's son. What is happening in this story? Now, the reason why a lot of us have heard sermons over and over again about Peter's like a braggart or he's arrogant because he's like sees Jesus doing this cool walk on water thing. He's like, I can do that too. And I'll test you, Jesus. And so if you want to come, right? But maybe it's that he's leaning into the whole discipleship system, which is a total game of follow the leader. And if Jesus is out there on the water, he should be out there too. And we're, our question should be, why aren't the other 11 saying, let me go also? Peter's the one to go. Maybe he's the oldest. He's the only one married. And later on, he's the only one to pay the temple tax with Jesus, which means he's the only one over 18, or at least the only one required to pay it at that moment. Maybe he's most outspoken because he's oldest. And he's setting the standard for everybody else around. Maybe he's just trying really hard. Can we just be cool with eager? Like, you know, really wants, really sincere, really trying hard to follow Jesus. But when Jesus shows up, right, they're freaked out, not just because they see the ghost. They're already scared. A wind has kicked up on the lake, and they're afraid. And if you did our uh, Bible conference or at all, we talked about tohu vavohu in the beginning of Genesis. What the waters symbolize chaos and the abyss and the deep and the realm of the underworld and not where God is in charge. Like Israelites know for sure God is the God of the desert, but is he also God of the waters? which definitely comes into this whole season, this whole scene in the Galilee. So Kepha has a lot of faith, this Peter dude, right? He's like, I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna follow. And after the sea is calmed down, they're like, you're really God's son. Let's take a look. We're now looking at the Sea of Galilee from the south looking north. And as we kind of fly on in, hopefully that's gonna work, yeah. And we approach here, we're looking towards that northern portion of the sea right here where Jesus does most of his ministry. And because it's in this rift valley as we're now here in the north portion and we're looking down at the plain of Gennesaret and coming through the Arbel Pass, and this might've been the place where Jesus came up to pray for his disciples. It's a place where rabbis often did so. And as we kind of come on in through here, it looks so peaceful and serene. But because it sits down deep in the Rift Valley, 700 feet below sea level, 600 to 700 feet below sea level, when those winds kick up, it's quite scary. And significant damage can happen fast. And because of the type of fishing they do, their boat sides are low. So the one wave can take out a boat very quickly. There's a reason that they're afraid. It's reasonable to be afraid. Many of them probably didn't even know how to swim, right? They're not water-going people. They're not Californians. They're not like, can't wait to get out there. And people 
pass away every year in the Sea of Galilee still today. I've been there when storms have kicked up. It's not safe to go on the waters. It's significant. And that Jesus can go out there and walk. And they're trying to wrestle and struggle with all of the forces of nature. And they're wondering, you know, sort of what force has brought this down upon them. These seasoned professional fishermen. Peter has enough courage to say, even though it's scary, even though I'm frightened, I want to go out there too. By the way, just last May, a year ago, there was a huge massive windstorm that, that struck up on the Sea of Galilee, caused $50 million of damage on the shoreline. This was a scary moment for Peter, and he does it anyway. I mean, I think, go Peter. Way to go, man. You tried. Everybody else stayed in the boat. He's willing to go and get out and walk a little bit. And I don't know if the story's telling us so much about how to prevent ourselves from falling into water when we're walking on water. I don't think, any, this, is, I don't think this is gonna happen to any one of us. But I do think that the story is telling us something really important about who Jesus is. When we doubt, when we sink, when we fall, when we fail, when we deny, when we mess it all up, when it's scary, when things are difficult, when the chaos kicks up, when things are out of control, Jesus rescues us. Jesus will pull you and me out when we have done it all wrong, when we've reached out beyond what is reasonable, when it's scary, when, we should, when we're in places where we shouldn't be, when all of those things are happening, when we've messed it all up, Jesus will still rescue us. Peter doesn't need to have it right in order to be rescued. He simply is like, uh-oh, help. My favorite prayer, by the way, Jesus help. Seriously, two, two words, use it all the time. Just help, and Jesus does. In Christ, the story is telling us that in Jesus, perfection is not required. You don't have to have it all together in order to follow Jesus. In fact, nobody has it all together, so we should just follow Jesus, right? And this story also, I think, is telling us that failure does not disqualify us from following Jesus. If you and I have messed it up, if we've done the most terrible, difficult things, Jesus is full of a thousand gajillion infinity second chances. He doesn't ever rescue us or save us because we deserve it, because we earned it, because we kept our eyes on him, because we did our quiet times the right way in the morning, because we found the right partners, because we didn't say all the curse words out loud that were also in our heads, right? He's not rescuing us because we have it together. All of the Jesus story is telling us that he just rescues us because he loves us. Jesus calls us, Jesus saves us, Jesus rescues us, Jesus loves us, Jesus sees us in all of our mess and says, oh, did you doubt? Yeah, I still, I still got you. I still, I still got you. Let's get back in the boat. And then to all of the chaos that is pushing and swirling all around us, Jesus says, cease, be still.
will still be wet and cold in the boat and scared and confused. But Jesus still rescues us. You know, the question is often asked, do you believe in Jesus? But maybe we should also be asking, do you believe that Jesus believes in you? Do you know that Jesus looks at you and says, yeah, come on, follow me. You can help me catch people. What an incredible invitation. What an incredible opportunity that we get to simply experience the rescue of Jesus. That we get to be invited to come out on the waters try a new thing, see what might work, fail miserably, and still be rescued, still be loved, still be set back on our feet, dripping wet, a hot mess, and still be called. Perfection is not required. Failure is expected. It's actually one of the themes we see through the whole Bible. People will mess it up, all the time constantly, and God is still standing here saying, I got you, I love you, come follow me. Oh, did you mess up again? No problem, come follow me. Just keep coming. Difficult events happen towards the end of Jesus's life with these disciples and all their personality types sitting around the table. And as Jesus sits there in that space, knowing the personalities of each one, knowing that one has betrayed, knowing all that is going to happen, he says, come to the table. All are welcome here. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you and do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is in the blood, in my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table, all the doubters, all the people who fail, all the people who fall short. That's all of us. The table's been set. All who are hungry, come and eat. If you're thirsty, come and drink. 